0: In what we are doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary, involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Folks, we're back. Meditations and Molotovs. Every Monday, I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network. You can check us out at prn.fm. And this program, Meditations and Molotovs, airs every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. That's 11 o'clock on the West Coast and 2 p.m. on the East Coast. You are just listening to Three Teeth an industrial metal band out of Los Angeles, California. Well, it's good to be back. I'm feeling a little tired, a little worn out. It's been one hell of a campaign season here. Tons of races, local elections, national elections, keeping up with various campaigns that are happening in the area. I know last week we spoke with Thomas Frank, about some of what's happening in Northwest Indiana uh, with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement, with regard to the campaign to stop the GEO Group. And for those of you who aren't aware, the GEO Group is the second largest private prison contractor in the world. So there's only one group. I believe it's Correctional Something of America. I forget what the name of the the number one uh, most profitable and largest private prison corporation in the world is. Nonetheless, Geo Group is number two, and GeoGroup is trying to build what they call an immigrant detention facility, um, what the average person would refer to as simply a prison, in Gary, Indiana. And for those who aren't aware, Gary, Indiana is about 90% African-American city, very, very poor city, and I mean poor, I mean economically poor, unemployment, no jobs, it's a food desert, there's no restaurants, there's hardly any nightlife or any kind of culture happening outside the scope of say, you know, community groups or local activists who are trying to create that culture. Um, To put lightly, you know, it is one of the most devastated cities in the industrialized world. I would I would say that if you were to take uh, my friends and, and, and people you might know, say, from overseas, uh, say, from somewhere like Western Europe, Australia, Japan, or any of the indu- other industrialized nations, they would not recognize what they see in Gary, Indiana. There is no comparison where they live. And that's not just Gary, Indiana. That's the broader Rust Belt. If you were to take someone from one of the, mo- the industrialized nations around the world and you were to bring them to the American Rust Belt, they would have absolutely no idea what to make of that. And I know because I've had friends here from overseas before, friends I've met in Europe, friends I've met in Australia, who've come here to look at this. And I know it's something that we've harped on, You know, in the program in the past, in the last few segments, but I think it's worth remembering. It's especially worth remembering at a time when Donald Trump has become the presumptive, I guess that's the term people are using now. So he's, as some of us have been arguing for months, he is going to be the GOP nominee for 2016. Now that's all but said and done. And, you know, I wanted to mention this article. This is an interesting article by David Brooks in the New York Times. So Brooks writes an article on April 29th. This was before Trump's smashing victory in the Hoosier state, which essentially gave him the nomination. And that's not to blame the people of Indiana. Uh, that in fact, I'm very unsurprised that a lot of Rust Belt voters have gravitated towards someone like Trump. And you know, as Trump mentioned on the cable talk radio or cable programs and some of the talk radio programs over the last 48 hours, he actually expects to pull some of Bernie Sanders supporters to his side because of his policy, his trade policies and his stance on maybe one or two other issues, the war in Iraq so forth. I find that interesting because I do think there's some truth to that. So Brooks writes an article called If Not Trump, then what? And he starts the article by saying, quote, Donald Trump now looks set to be the Republican presidential nominee. So for those of us appalled by this prospect, what are we supposed to do? And this is Brooks, you know, operating as the sort of ideological frontman for this what would you call it, a modern neoconservative movement? He's somewhat hawkish. He's not that hawkish. He's a hawk, but he's not as, quite as hawkish as, say, someone like Paul Wolfowitz or Donald Rumsfeld or Charles Krauthammer. And nonetheless, he continues, well, quote, not what the leaders of the Republican Party are doing. They're going down meekly and hoping for a quiet convention. They seem unaware that this is a Joe McCarthy moment. People will be judged by where they stood at this time. Those who walked with Trump will be tainted forever after for the degradation of standards and the general election slaughter. So let's just stop there. Okay, so, so according to people like David Brooks, there are certain standards that presidential nominees should live up to. See, this part of the critique about Trump I completely disagree with, and this is something that I think we should talk more about. So there's this idea that there should that people who run for US president should seem presidential. But what is presidential? This is what's interesting to me. So if you ask the liberals or if you ask Democrats who glorify people like John F. Kennedy or they still talk in positive ways about someone like Bill Clinton. How could How are the – I mean the hypocrisy for these very same people to be bad-mouthing Trump because of his, quote, degradation of standards, unquote. So it wasn't degrading for a a sitting U.S. president to get blowjobs from interns that he was pressuring or using his power to coerce them into doing what it is he wanted them to do. And just so people don't get it twisted, you know, I'm not a right-wing lunatic here, as people probably know, (laughs) being on this program and who've listened to previous shows or who are aware of my work and my writings. But it's tough because sometimes what the right says isn't completely wrong. And I know a lot of liberals, progressives, leftists, whatever people refer to themselves as, they have a really tough time with this. So, there's always this reactionary element on the left that wants to defend causes, people, organizations, books, ideas that are indefensible only because these same causes, books, individuals, organizations are simultaneously being attacked from the right wing. Bill Clinton is a perfect example. So, there's nothing to defend about Bill Clinton, he's a horrible individual who used his power in very sickening ways, I'm sure for people who have daughters or for people who just generally respect women, that you probably wouldn't want your daughter to be Monica Lewinsky. Is that the kind of future you want for your daughter, someone who felt pressured, someone who felt intimidated and attracted maybe to someone who's in this powerful position, this person who's in a powerful position Gets off scot-free, continues with their very powerful lifestyle, while you are made out to be, or in the case of Monica Lewinsky, you know, the mistress, the slut. you know this was the presidency of Bill Clinton. That wasn't the worst what Bill Clinton was doing. I mean, launching cruise missiles overseas because the media was hounding him. Signing the Telecommunications Act in 1996, overturning Glass-Steagall, signing the the crime bill, welfare reform, NAFTA, the largest single jobs-killing and benefits-killing trade deal ever signed into law. I mean, these were all things that happened under Bill Clinton. And let us not remember the sanctions in Iraq. You know, according to the UN, costing over 500,000 people's lives, largely women and children, because Bill and company didn't want to seem weak to the Republicans or to the right wing, the people who were saying, oh, well, you know, these Democrats, these liberals, they're weak. Or maybe it was his own ideology. Nonetheless, Degger of standards, as David Brooks puts it, I think is very hypocritical, so yes, of course, Trump says bombastic things, Trump says ridiculous things, absolutely ridiculous things, you know there's some funny segment that someone had, oh I think it was on YouTube or somewhere, but they were essentially talking about or it showed a gentleman who was you know playing the role of Trump, and he was like half loaded and sitting on a couch and Somebody was asking him questions, and it was like, you know, this is what it's like to talk to your drunk uncle. But the person was just simply, the person who was playing the drunk uncle was simply, you know, quoting stuff that Trump had said, things that Trump had said over the course of this campaign. And so, yes, of course he says crazy things. But has he killed anyone? Well, I mean, indirectly, somebody can argue, you know, maybe because of his, his construction, I don't know, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it. Has he killed thousands of people? No. Has he killed millions of people? Like LBJ, another uh, Democrat? You know, has he killed hundreds of thousands of people? Like Bill Clinton? Has he killed thousands of tens of thousands of people? Like Barack Obama and his drone program? and his disastrous foreign policy in the middle east and north africa especially but we should also add ukraine and so forth so i see a lot of crocodile tears from my liberal friends from my or from these you know progressives out there who bemoan trump who absolutely loathe trump But haven't found it within – haven't found the values or principles within themselves to stand up and speak out against the worst crimes the Democrats have committed. This is the double standard of this sort of liberal ideology. And this is why a good number of working class people who can see through the BS – don't buy what MSNBC is selling. They're not buying it because it's so easy to point out the double standards of the liberals in American political society and culture. I see it with my liberal friends. They're up in arms because Donald Trump made a, uh, a speech that offended them, but they're not up in arms uh, over, the pre- over the president that they voted into office stripping us of our civil liberties. They're not up in arms when Obama supports the NSA and expands spying and surveillance and wiretapping programs on every single American. They're not upset when Obama decides that it's okay for NATO and for our European allies to overthrow the government of Muammar Gaddafi or to help overthrow the government of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, leading to absolute chaos and destruction. They're not up in arms when a month or two months after Obama came into office, one of his first major acts was to increase the troops and the troop presence in Afghanistan. Another failed war, another useless and horrific foreign policy disaster perpetuated by the United States. Okay, sure, Bush started the war, but Obama took it over, and he loved it. And he, in fact, he loved it so much and thought the mission was so worth it that he put another 45,000 troops on the ground no less than three months after getting into office, after being sworn into office, one of his first major acts. For those who didn't know prior to Obama raising his right hand that he was a hawk or at least a closet hawk, that should have been clear enough. So when you hear all of these pundits you know, talking about how Trump isn't presidential, ask them what exactly is presidential? Is presidential John F. Kennedy getting blowjobs and snorting cocaine with Marilyn uh, Monroe in the uh, Rose Garden? Is it uh, JFK, you know, so the story of Camelot and the wonderful, you know, Jackie and... The whole family and Ted and Bobby Kennedy and all of these people were corrupt. Their dad was a bootlegger, had ties to the mafia. The only reason JFK won the state of Illinois was because of the mafia. My great-grandmother voted three times, count them three times <laughs> in the in the uh, election against Nixon, swinging Illinois for JFK. That was sort of the de- decisive victory in that in that election cycle. Um, what exactly is presidential? I mean, of course, you know I mean I feel like you have to spell everything out or else people will misinterpret, and not because that means people are stupid or this or that, but because people sometimes just hear what they want to hear but I, I I get really concerned when I hear people like David Brooks say. Oh, well, you know, this is a degradation of standards. And there's been many others. Many others who are up in arms over stuff that Trump promises to do, yet haven't been up in arms over the things that Barack Obama has done. Or, and it's not, I mean, I'm harping on Obama today, but, you know, Republicans, whoever else supports these sort of neoliberal, neoconservative, regressive laws and policies. Where have these people been for the last seven years? Where were they uh, when? So uh, where were they when the Trans-Pacific Partnership was being debated, and when Obama was running around the globe, pressuring our allies in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, and the Philippines, and Vietnam, and so forth, in Australia. To accept the Trans-Pacific Partnership, what some commentators have come to call the NAFTA on steroids. The the level of cynicism and hypocrisy is absolutely astonishing. But here's where Brooks' article gets interesting. And then you know, the second part of that sentence where he says the degradation of standards and the general election, so people who walk with Trump will be tainted forever after, you know, for these degradation of standards and this this uh, general election slaughter, I'm not so sure. And in fact, for those who have been wondering or for those who have been questioning whether or not Trump has a chance to beat Clinton, and by the way, I know my friends who support Bernie are going to hate to hear this, but it absolutely will be Hillary Clinton. So in my opinion, the Bernie people would do themselves a great favor to just recognize that this election is over And that someone who has three to four, I don't even know, it might be upwards of four million more popular votes, is going to get the nomination. Now, everything else that the Bernie people are saying, I completely agree with. Yes, the system was rigged. Yes, the system was uh, uh, disproportionately backing Clinton, of course. Yes, the media did a poor job. Yes, the Democratic Party is corrupt. Uh, yes, a lot of the, the major unions didn't properly organize their membership, let alone their own leadership and resources to back Bernie. But I'm sorry, my liberal Bernie friends, Bernie supporter friends. Uh, people on the left could have told you that way before the election started. None of that was new. And here I have to give credit to the people who have been critical on the left and who have been writing about this, people like Glenn Ford. Uh, People like Paul Street, Jeffrey St. Clair, we can name a whole host of people who have been, I think, correct in making certain arguments about the election. I've noticed this since being a part of the election, okay? A lot of people within the Bernie campaign, there's always – so there's – of course it's not a homogenous group, right? So there's people within the Bernie campaign who – how would I put this? From the very beginning – just sort of balls to the wall. We're going to win this election at all costs. We don't want to hear about after the election. We don't want to hear about alternatives. We don't want to hear about what happens if we don't win. We're going to, until the very last vote is counted, we're going to pretend or we're going to, maybe even, you know, not, I shouldn't say pretend because these people wholeheartedly believe this. We are going to fight for Bernie to win. Okay. Then the election started and right away, those odds became smaller and smaller. When there wasn't a clear strategy to reach out to Black people, which is true, and it's not just that. There's all kind. Of, that's a that's a, a very in depth, complicated conversation in and of itself. Why hasn't Bernie gotten support from the Black community? But what do we mean when we say the Black community? Because if you look at at uh, the uh, the statistics, I'm sorry you'll see that black voters aged 18 to 25 overwhelmingly support Bernie. That's the same when we're talking about Hispanic Latino voters. Same thing. And, of course, it's the same when we're talking about white voters. So you can't make these big, broad statements about the election campaign as well, or specifically Bernie's campaign. But there wasn't a strategy. I mean, that's also real. So that exists At the same time that there's internal arguments, internal problems within the African-American community that wouldn't lend itself to, say, supporting a candidate like Bernie Sanders. Not all of that is the Sanders campaign fault. But then from the flip side, as I've heard some of my friends say who have worked and support the Sanders campaign, it's also not the fault of black voters. You know, there's there's some overlap, there's some give and some take here, there's Problems on both sides, and, and and to be honest, it's not just a two-sided thing. That there's problems within progressive political movements, racial and ethnic divides, class divides, professional non-professional divides, male female divides that are very real. So I think we should, you know, maybe focusing on that would do better for us, and be more worthwhile for a movement. But you know, then some of us I think knew if you didn't agree that maybe earlier in the year that the race was over, then at least when Bernie lost states like Illinois, Ohio, Florida, that was, I mean, I'm sorry, folks, but you know, as I was writing about when those races were ending in those states, it's been over since then. And the reason I keep saying this and the reason I think it's really important for Bernie supporters to come to this conclusion is so we can move forward Because all of this is is happening in limited time. Like I've noticed in the past with campaigns that you have to have these conversations as soon as possible. A lot of the same things I'm seeing from Bernie supporters I saw from Obama supporters in 2008. Yes, these were people with great intentions. These were people who after eight years of disastrous Bush-Cheney regime wanted something different, thought they were getting something different. However, when people would ask them what happens after the campaign, very reluctant to have that conversation. Now, to be fair, Bernie's supporters are much different and much more sophisticated. I say that because some of his – actually a good number of his supporters are also people who supported Obama's campaign in 2008. A good number of Bernie supporters are independents who otherwise wouldn't show up to vote. Another good segment of Bernie's supporters are people who – um, you know, are involved with other activities, other actions already, as I mentioned. You know, they could be working on issues surrounding criminal justice reform, environmentalists, people from the Occupy movement, people from the anti-war movement. All of those people are involved with Bernie's campaign, have been from the get-go. But where do we go now is the question. You know, where do people go now? I think – it would be smart for us to stop pouring money and time into the campaign. Now, for the states who are left, like Indiana. So before Indiana voted, people were telling me, well, Vince, well, you know, the campaign's over. Hillary's going to get the nomination. So why are you guys continuing? I think there's several reasons why we continue to fight in Indiana. I mean, number one, I think it is symbolically important. Sometimes... The symbolic nature of the political process is just as important to me as the sort of material nature of the political process. So that symbolism matters. You know, it matters to people who are on the ground organizing day in and day out, whether it's an election year or not an election year, to see where people stand in this state. You know, where are independents and Democratic voters? Where do they stand? Who do they support? Do they support the neoliberal message of Hillary Clinton? Do they support the neoliberal status quo, war hawk message of of Hillary Clinton? Or do they support a message coming from Bernie Sanders, someone who calls himself a democratic socialist, a social democrat? Or as Noam Chomsky just mentioned, simply uh, a 21st century version of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was a Republican general who was U.S. president. I mean, that's how far to the right we've swung, where now someone like Bernie Sanders looks like a radical, whereas his policies were akin to a Republican general who was elected U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower almost 70 years ago. You know, that's how far to the right things have swung. That gives you an idea of how far to the right things have swung. Yeah, you know, but the policies are essentially the same. He's not saying you know, how how propagandized and how insane as a society have we become where when someone gets up and simply says, Hey, look, I think the political system is rigged. Most people agree with that. So right there, most people agree with that. Most people, if you were to ask them, Democrat, Republican, Liberal, Conservative, or otherwise, would say yes. The U.S. government does not have my best interests at heart. If you were to ask the average person, do you think that the U.S. government has your interests, your best interests at heart? Or do you think that they pander more to, say, multinational corporations and big banks? 99 out of 100 people in this country are going to tell you, if you're just straight up talking to them, maybe not 99 out of 100. I'm exaggerating, but you get the point vast majority of Americans would agree with that statement. So Bernie's saying things that people agree with. He's saying, hey, I think you should have uh, health care. I think health care is a human right. I think this is something that people should have. This was the same thing Franklin Delano Roosevelt was talking about in the 1930s and 40s. Somehow this is radical today in 2016. Very basic policies education should be affordable. Who in the hell wouldn't agree with that? I mean, how insane do you have to be to not agree that public education should be more affordable and that students shouldn't be going tens of thousands of dollars into debt in order to get a degree, a degree which today is not no longer an option, as most people have come to point out as well. You know, a degree today, a college degree is almost like having a high school degree in the past. It's essentially a requirement. It's a prerequisite if you want to make more money, if you want to move up in the, in the corporate world, if you want to have a better job, if you want to have better benefits, and so forth. So what he's saying isn't radical. And I think the more we can talk to people about this, because obviously if this message is resonating with people in Indiana, which it, it has. And that's part of the reason why I continue to work on the campaign, even after understanding or knowing that Hillary Clinton was a lock for the nomination. Number two, or maybe this should have been number one, it was an organizing opportunity, as I've told people in the past. I don't know what world the rest of the left lives in, and I don't know who they're organizing, and I would argue that they're not organizing people. But if there was another venue to meet thousands and thousands of like-minded people, I would be all for it. I mean, I think elections are some of the more vapid experiences you could participate in. I mean, they're great. They're in. To be honest with you, I think the work is quite easy. You know, this is another thing, my friend. Roberto, who's a great community organizer, and I, we constantly talk about this. You know, election work, actually rather easy as opposed to the day-to-day work of doing political activism grassroots campaigning much more difficult the campaign against geo group and gary is leaps and bounds more trying and difficult both physically intellectually socially politically and so on as the bernie as working with the bernie sanders campaign is working with a campaign is easy easy political work You have your marching orders, you have a team that you want to win, you have a clear strategy, you have uh, acceptable tactics, you already know what the political program is, there's talking points in case you speak to the media, everything's planned out, all you really have to do is make some phone calls, set up some fundraisers, have a couple parties and knock on some doors. That's it. Yes, there's a bunch of little details in between all of this that people, you know, functions that people perform and so on. But that's essentially it. That's a hell of a lot easier than a bunch of people who don't have the money, don't have the training, and don't have the, say, um, easy task of telling people, well, hey, it's just this. This So for, you know, in the case of, say, trying to stop a, immigrant detention facility or a prison from being put in much more difficult task. You know what the folks have been doing with the break free from fossil fuels event is a much more difficult task. And I actually want to get to that. That's a good segue. But what I wanted to mention with, with David Brooks is part of what, and I want to get down cause I, I'm going to give him some, as much as I'm sort of spent the first half of this program thinking of talking about this article how this ties into the election with Bernie Sanders. What I do find really interesting about this David Brooks piece is what he's willing to admit. He admits, I'm trying to find exactly where in the article he's sort of, uh, let's see here. Well, there's part. there's a part of the, okay, here we go. So, let's see. This decline, this quoting from the article again. This declinism intertwines with other horrible societal statistics. The suicide rate has surged to a 30-year high in the United States, a sure sign of rampant social isolation. A record number of Americans believe the American dream is out of reach, and for millennials, social trust is at historic lows. Trump's success grew out of that pain but he is not the right response to it. The job for the rest of us is to figure out the right response. That means, first, it's necessary to go out into the pain. I was surprised by Trump's success because I've slipped into a bad pattern, spending large chunks of my life in the bourgeois strata, in professional circles with people with similar status and demographics to my own. It takes an act of will to rip yourself out of that and go where you feel least comfortable. But this column is going to try and do that over the next few months and years. We all have some responsibility to do one activity that leaps across the chasms of segmentation that afflict this country, unquote. Essentially what David Brooks is saying, and he says it I think somewhat well when he says spending large chunks of his life in the bourgeois strata, in professional circles with people with similar status and demographics to his own. That article, if any liberal had or in the mainstream media had any kind of class or dignity, it should have been written by them, not by some half-rate conservative hack from the New York Times who constantly gets it wrong and is so, so mundane and boring and ridiculous to listen to and read that people barely even check out his stuff. This should have been written by somebody like Paul Krugman. could have been written by a thousand other people. Rachel Maddow, Chris Matthews, could have been written by all of them. They were dead wrong from the get-go because, as some of us have been saying from the start, these people do not live in the same places as the rest of us. And that's not just on the liberal side for those who are listening, because I've spent the majority of this program bashing liberals. This is also on the conservative side, and this is what's so amazing. So you see pictures of Trump and Clinton together at weddings, hanging out together, you know, their families laughing, joking, hamming it up, both making millions, both you know, and billions of dollars. I mean, both vacation at this vineyard. Maybe Hillary runs into. Yeah, uh, what's her name? Ivana, Ivanka. I can't. I don't. Can't keep up with all of these different names for Trump's wives. Nonetheless, the the model that he's currently married to. You know, I mean, isn't this cute? She probably runs into Hillary at the grocery store in Martha's Vineyard. Well, they don't go to the grocery store. They run into each other while they're getting in and out of each other's uh, limousines on the way to the local cafe. Or sunbathing on the beach. You know, their kids are going to the same places, going to the same schools, same fraternities and sororities. And it's the same in the media world. So you have people like Rachel Maddow and Bill O'Reilly on the other end. You know, supposedly arch enemies, you know. these, And, and the average person buys this kind of shit. And this is the problem. The average person is, you know, they pick these teams, and they say, oh, well, you know, I'm with, I'm with Rachel Maddow and the people at MSNBC because I'm smart and I'm I'm college educated and I consider myself to be an intellectual who's interested in objective knowledge and blah, blah, blah. And on the other end, you've got, you know, say your standard blue-collar guy who, you know, maybe lives in a place like Michigan City, Indiana, who's saying, well, you know, Bill O'Reilly expresses where I'm coming from. It's this, you know, it's a no BS attitude and I ain't got time for these Blacks and Asians and immigrants and Muslims complaining about all this stuff. And so in the meantime, what's interesting to me is that Bill O'Reilly's listeners wouldn't talk to Rachel Maddow's listeners and vice versa if you paid them to. Donald Trump's supporters wouldn't talk to Hillary Clinton's supporters and vice versa if you paid them to. Yet these people all hang out together. They joke with each other at the White House correspondence Dinner. They play golf together. Restaurants. Their kids go to the same schools. And in the meantime, we're the jokers. I mean, we're the ones who get screwed. And we are the ones, my friends, who are being played like fools because these people want us to hate each other. When we have much more – the average Hillary Clinton supporter and the average Donald Trump supporter have more in common with one another – than they do with the leaders that they love so much. Let me say that just one more time. And this this is across international boundaries, nationalistic lines, ethnic and racial and religious lines as well, ideological lines and so forth. This is an argument that internationalists have been trying to make for decades. Namely, that the average American has more in common with the average Iranian or the average Russian or the average Chinese person as they do with our own leaders and vice versa. So the average worker going to work, nine to five job, trying to raise some kids, trying to have a family, trying to retire, have a decent place to live, eat some decent food, have a good time before he dies or he or she dies, who lives in Russia they have more in common with you and i than they do with vladimir putin and we have more in common with them than we do with barack obama or donald trump or george bush or hillary clinton or for bernie sanders for that matter and i think we always have to keep that in mind because i see i find some of this to be absolutely ridiculous for You know, this sort of divide and conquer strategy that works so well for those in power. And it is sophisticated. You know, it's not it's not as though these people are idiots. Because I hear that a lot too in this election. It's like, well, these people are dumb. Well, they didn't get to be one election away from holding the most powerful single office in the world by being a bunch of idiots. They're not idiots. So we need to stop saying that. People need to stop thinking that. That's not the case. These people are smart. The decisions they make are calculated. And they know what they want. You know, the question that I think we need to answer, you know, and that could be vis-a-vis radio programs, articles, educational events, just conversations you're having with friends and family, comrades, and so on, is what is it that we want? part of what we want is to envision racial justice and to create a community and a nation that values anti-racism and inequality. And At least that's from my perspective. That's from the perspective of people who believe in those values. So that leads me, for people in the local area, to tell you about an event Tomorrow in Hobart, Indiana, at the Augustana Lutheran Church at two hundred seven North Kelly Street. That's tomorrow at six thirty PM. This is hosted by the first Unitarian Church of Hobart. The event is called On Walls Building Community Envisioning Racial Justice, Anti Racism Leads to Equity. A panel discussion forum for all people across our communities, the objectives of this panel is to explore forms, different forms of racism, to envision racial justice and what that looks like, and how to use anti-racist policies and practices as a path to equity. The panelists are Dr. Vanessa Allen, president and CEO of the Urban League of Northwest Indiana Incorporated. Samuel A.E. Love, a community organizer from Gary, Indiana, and a previous guest on Meditations in Molotovs. Reverend Cheryl Rivera, the executive director of the Northwest Indiana Federation of Interfaith Organizations. Brian Snendekor, mayor of Hobart. I probably butchered his name. Uh, nonetheless, also Captain Gregory Viator, director of technology at the Hobart Police Department. This event is sponsored by the Faith in Action community of the First Unitarian Church of Hobart and Augustana Lutheran Church of Hobart. It is the first in a series of community discussions to include Black Lives Matter, Northwest Indiana Interfaith Federation, and other faith communities, as well as government leaders. At the first forum, participants will learn the distinction between racism, passive non-racism, and active anti-racism. Panelists and participants will have opportunity to envision racial justice in northwest Indiana. And the panel wants to provide participants with a path to learn more and participate in anti-racist work in their communities. The event is free and open to the public, and light refreshments will be served. Just to let you know, once again, tomorrow, May 10th, which is also my birthday, so I'm going (laughs) to – a little shameless shout-out to myself. I look forward to going to the – gym today and punching in on the elliptical that I'm 31 years old for the last time and um, so this is tomorrow tearing down walls building community May 10th tomorrow at the Augustana Lutheran Church at 207 North Kelly Street in Hobart Indiana you could check that out on Facebook the event is called tearing down the walls building community also this weekend I want to let people know you know last week we had Thomas Frank on the program discussing the break free from Fossil Fuels event. For those who aren't aware, uh, I want to also sort of, you know, give you a little background of what the Break Free event is. Uh, so let me see if I could pull it up here real quick. And then I can tell you about the event that's going on this Saturday in Whiting, Indiana. And this is the biggest event in the Midwest. So these events are taking place all over the world. There was actually just a series of huge events that took place they shut down a whole portion of railroad tracks in australia hundreds of people arrested kayakers who were blocking one of the biggest ports i think maybe the biggest port export import of coal in the world trying to save the coral reefs standing up and standing against the fossil fuel industry you know so the break free event just to give people an overview This break free from fossil fuels is a two-week global wave of escalated action to keep coal, oil, and natural gas in the ground. So it's happening all over the world. Um, There's events that are upcoming. There's events that have already been completed. So there's one event that was completed in New Zealand and Australia. There's already been an event in the United Kingdom. There's already been an event in the Philippines. There's six events taking place in the United States coming up. There's one in Canada one in Germany, one in Turkey, three in Nigeria, two more in Brazil with one happening today, one in Indonesia, three more left in New Zealand, and two in South Africa. So people could definitely, I mean, this is an easy way for people to plug in, see what's happening with the environmental movement. And, you know, I think in many ways, again, just like the Bernie campaign, the break free from fossil fuels and you can access all of this information at breakfree2016.org so people should remain critical of these events doesn't mean crit- critical to the point of inaction or critical to the point of being demobilized because of that criticism you know i'm simply saying that just you know go into these events with eyes wide open look at what's happening you know talk to some of the organizers and protesters see what you think you would do differently and be a part of the movement and talk about those things openly and honestly. The movement or of certain actions or how actions were set up, they should be welcomed. you know. But at the same time, as I just mentioned, you can't be critical without doing the work and expect people to pay attention to you. So if you're constantly critical yet you never show up to any of these events, or if you're constantly critical yet you never volunteer any of your time to help fix some of the things that you think should be fixed, then you can't expect people to pay attention to you. So we've had plenty of that too in the movement. So, you know, just think about it. If, if um, you know, you're inclined to go out to an event like, so this event in Whiting, it's the biggest event in the Midwest, is um, Sunday at 12 p.m. This is May 15th, so this Sunday at 12 p.m., six days from now, at the Whiting Lake Lakefront Park. That's at 1798 119th Street. That's 1798 119th Street, Whiting, Indiana. That's this Sunday at noon. And I'll read to you from the actual event page. From the toxic waste created by the extreme extraction of tar sands, destroying indigenous communities in Canada to toxins created by the BP Whiting Refinery producing sacrifice communities in the greater Chicago area,
1: to the resultant
0: catastrophic effect on our climate, the urgent need for a just transition away from fossil fuels to a 100% renewable energy economy is abundantly clear. Across the world communities are taking action this May as part of a global mobilization to take on the fossil fuel industry. From power plants to refineries to coal mines, Break Free Midwest will take place at the BP Whiting Refinery, the largest tar sands refinery in the United States, and the end of the line for much of what tar sands oil is shipped on the Enbridge Pipeline Network. On Sunday, May 15th, we will assemble for a rally at Whiting Lake for Lakefront Park on the shores of Lake Michigan and then march to the BP Oil Refinery. The schedule is noon Community Resource Fair tabling kayak activism on Lake Michigan, 12.30 p.m. press conference, 1 p.m. rally starts, 2 p.m. the actual march to the refinery starts. So join these activists and protesters and organizers on May 15, 2016, as they declare their right to live without fear of toxins from the fossil fuel industry. For transportation from Chicago, there's shuttle bus info coming soon. From Milwaukee, there's a website. From Minneapolis, there's a website. And from Madison, there's information to come soon. So if you want to take action and sign up for this event, go to Midwest.breakfree2016.org. That's Midwest. Dot breakfree2016.org. And so what I'll try and do in the future, because a lot of what I do as I've told people in the past with this program, a lot of what I plan on doing, is to promote not only local act- actions, but national and international actions as well. So for every archived um, show that I do, I was informed today that it will be posted within a couple hours, even if it's the next day. Not a big deal. What I'll do is I'll post a hyperlink within the short description of the show. That way if people hear something that they can't go back and check, if they hear something and they kind of miss it, or if they can't understand something, if I'm not being clear enough, at least there will be a link provided within the archived show summary. So check out the archived shows and in the summary of those shows, I'll keep a I'll hyperlink all of these events to either their Facebook pages. Or to websites so people can go and check out the event. They can you know, pass around the information, find out ways to be plugged in, and so forth. And speaking of the break-free event, there was a few other articles I was going to mention. One of them, kind of how insane globalization is today. And I can briefly mention that. So there was an article in the UK Mirror. The title of the article says it all. British Armies, New Fighting Vehicles to be built in Spain using Swedish steel. This <laughs> now, the mirror, as most people know, of course, again, this it actually ties back into what I was saying at the beginning of the show. Just because the right wing is saying it doesn't mean it's wrong. Now, the way in which they say it or what it is that they're um, you know, upset about, that this should be examined, could be critiqued. But the point is, that this is this is what a lot of people are looking at, and they see it as you know a lot of regular working people see this article in England, you know. So in 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 the UK, which has just overtaken us for the illustrious position of being the country uh, with the lowest social mobility rate in the industrialized world, so they should be very proud of that because now we're only second to last. And something else we should be very proud of. So it, with, in a country with the lowest social mobility rate in the world and for those who don't understand what that means what in short what that essentially means is that the chances of a brit born right now doing better uh, than the position in which they were born into the socioeconomic status in which they were born into we don't need to be building more tanks and i'm sure the british army doesn't need more fighting vehicles no more than they need more schools or better housing that being said even i think traditional conservatives would argue that you wouldn't want defense capabilities outsourced you wouldn't want the the actual products outsourced but you also wouldn't want the uh you know the, so the manufacturing process but then also the steel so the steel is coming from somewhere else so you're getting the steel from somewhere else and Then you're going to use that steel in a different country to build a vehicle that's supposed to keep you safe, supposedly, from other countries. On its face, it's crazy. Nonetheless, if you want to check it out, it's on the mirror.co.uk. That's British Army's new fighting vehicles to be built in Spain using Swedish steel. Another article I was going to mention, and this is about body image and the craziness and the crazy lengths people are going to – and there's sort of no pun intended there. The crazy lengths people are going to in order to fulfill this insane sort of image that the pop culture media has given people as to how they should are supposed to look. So this is a sickening article from two days ago in The Guardian. I have to be taller the unregulated world of India's limb-lengthening industry. So young Indians are paying for complex, painful procedures despite the absence of medical oversight in the race to improve career and marriage prospects. So in short, what this article is saying is that people want to be taller because it will improve their career and marriage prospects. They're going through insane lengths to do this. You know, when, and again. What I mean, we could just all, you know, gawk at the article and say, "Oh my God, look at this! This people are so crazy. I can't believe this." But you know, I think we this this is something we all need to be addressing. This is something all of us should be talking about. And what kind of pressures do, does the world, pop culture, the media, and what we can immediately control, so ourselves. You know, what kind of pressures are we putting on each other? People who feel they need to be taller just to get a job or to get married. Check that article out on The Guardian. That's I Have to Be Taller, The Unregulated World of India's Limb Lengthening Industry. There's another article I was going to tell people to check out. Plants Remember You If You Mess With Them Enough. Uh, Some sort of plant intelligence. This is something I've been interested in for a long time vis-a-vis the work and insights of someone like Derek Jensen. Uh, So check that article out. That's in the New York Times. Plants remember you if you mess with them enough. And why are we talking about the break-free event? Why are we going to constantly harp on this sort of future context that we'll all be living in? Well, because of a recent article, uh, you know, or because of something like this, you know, a recent article that was posted in the progressive.org study confirms world's coastal cities unsavable if we don't slash carbon pollution. A new study confirms, quote, what leading climate scientists have warned about for many years now. In fact, many decades going all the way back to the late 1980s. Only a very aggressive climate action can save the world's coastal cities from inundation by century's end. We could still limit sea level rise to two feet this century if we keep total warming below two degrees Celsius, according to an analysis using new findings. Otherwise, We should be anticipating five to six feet of sea level rise by 2100, which would generate hundreds of millions of refugees. And that isn't even the worst case scenario. The latest research from the journal Nature underscores that what the nation and the world do in the next decade or two will determine whether or not cities like Miami, Boston, New York, or New Orleans have any plausible chance to survive by 2100. Folks, this is the context that we talk about on this program. This is the context that environmental activists and others around the world have been telling people about for some time. This is about as serious as it gets. And I think it's important that we constantly remind ourselves of the serious situation as we go in day in and day out. We live our normal lives. you got normal concerns. you got to pay bills, all kinds of bullshit that you have to deal with. It's hard to remember that as this sign, this recent study shows, what we do in the next decade or two will determine whether or not cities like Miami, Boston, New York, New Orleans have any plausible chance to survive by 2100. That's all you need to know, folks. What we do politically, culturally, socially, artistically, economically, ecologically over the next 10 years, 20 years will determine whether or not we have a living planet. By the end of the century, I'll leave you with that. This is Meditations in Molotovs. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. You can check out this program every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time. We'll leave you with three teeth from Los Angeles, California.